Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. We have an incredible guest on today's show. Audrey Tang is the Digital Minister for Taiwan, a minister without portfolio, which is one of those twee Britishy terms that sounds like they forgot their briefcase, but actually means she doesn't have responsibility for a particular ministry. She is in charge of helping government agencies communicate policy goals and managing information published by the government, both via digital means. She is the youngest minister without portfolio in the country's history. Now you'll see the relevance and importance of this to AI when I say that it was thanks to Audrey's work on installing a digital democracy in Taiwan that they had such an incredibly successful response to the coronavirus pandemic. Only 440 cases and 7 deaths to date in a country of 23 million people and they did that without the sort of police state suppressive measures that many people thought would be necessary, particularly in a country so close to mainland China. And what's even more amazing is that most of their response emerged naturally from the digital democracy itself, which hands an extraordinary amount of decision-making power over to the people. I got a taste of how different things are there when I first contacted Audrey's office for this interview because they told me that the interview would be conducted according to a standard protocol for all her conversations that are part of her official role, which is that the recording would be published on their site unedited and they would make a transcript which would also be published verbatim on their site. And this is what she does for all interactions that are part of her official role. Now, try and imagine your elected representative being required to publish all their official transactions for the world to see. You start to get an idea of how different things are there. Initially, I balked because it seemed like it would have a restrictive effect. No part of our conversation would be private. But then I realized that this was an extension of the principles of the open source world where Audrey came from and where indeed we originally met. For those of you who know the term, it's like she GPL'd her conversations. I tell you this so you get an idea of part of the context within which Audrey's success is rooted. This is vitally important at a time when it seems that AI can be used for oppressive surveillance and that we can't avoid that happening, there are no shortages of examples of that happening. All you have to do to find some really scary ones is put China, AI, and surveillance into your search engine. If it seems inevitable that we will move in that direction in the West also, look at how many CCTV cameras there are in Britain, imagine them being hooked up to more capable AI, then Audrey's work can give us some hope that there is an alternative and it is actually more effective. Now a public service announcement. I know that some of you are want to crank up the speed on your podcasts, 
Maybe you're on the treadmill, you've got 30 minutes of power walking to get in before that kale smoothie breakfast. Time's burning, let's get going, people. Let me suggest that that's not going to work with Audrey. In fact, you may well find that you need to turn the speed down below normal because she speaks quickly. It's a common characteristic of very intelligent people that their brains generate words faster than their mouths can emit them. And then what happens? They're halfway through saying the first sentence, but their mind is already working on sentence six, and it thinks, hey, this would sound better if the first sentence was different. Can we change it? Oh, look, she's not done saying it yet. Let's try and edit it. So you get a traffic jam down at the vocal cords. Have you had that experience? Just goes to show how smart you are. Well, Audrey is not just smart. Her IQ is almost off the scale. But she doesn't have traffic jams in her speaking. Partly she makes up for it by speaking quickly, so you really get a two for the price of one. But she's also organized her thinking so precisely that every answer comes out like, if it were me, I'd have to spend an hour writing it down and practicing it first. It's not just her words that are dense, but her ideas. So let me know if you ended up having to crank the speed down, okay? All right, without further ado, let's get into the interview. I'm here with Audrey Tang. She is the Digital Minister for Taiwan, a minister without portfolio, in charge of helping government agencies communicate policy goals and managing information published by the government, both via digital means. She's the youngest minister without portfolio in Taiwanese history. And we first met over 15 years ago when she was an incredible coder in the open source movement. And she was writing not just phenomenal code, but entirely new ecosystems of phenomenal code. Her IQ has been measured at way past the official definition of genius. Now, many people want to uh, attempt a midlife career change, but going from hacker to national government minister is, shall we say, rare. Why was it important to you to take this job? Well, when we occupied the parliament in 2014 in protest of the Cross-Strait Service and Trade Agreement, or the CSSTA, the theory was that the MPs refused to deliberate substantially the Cross-Strait Trade Agreement. So people have to you know, take their place, do their job in the place for them. Uh, and because of that, uh, there's a, definitely a, a demo kind of spirit in it. When we say demo, uh, demonstration, we, we don't mean protests alone, right? We mean building something new, a new ecosystem, as I just said. Uh, and so with half a million people on the street and many more online, uh, back in 2014, we successfully agreed on four demand and no one less to the uh, MP. And, and interestingly, the head of the MP did take that uh, as binding, and it was a successful Occupy. And so right afterward, the Taiwanese cabinet see that with the power of the internet technologies, not only can we broadcast to millions of people, but it is actually possible for millions of people to listen to one another at scale. And so there's a great interest from the cabinet to learn about this new sort of deliberative technology. And so I joined the cabinet as a reverse mentor uh, to the then minister in charge of cyberspace uh, regulations. And because of that uh, two-year internship, I think it is important as civic hackers to work with, but not for, the government to modernize their idea of listening to people and also to make sure that people have a direct say in the policymaking, in the here and now. So that I think uh, I'm still a civic hacker and just working with the cabinet. 
and I believe you're even still writing code. You wrote an app for tracking masks. Yeah, uh, several things, right? I, I wrote a progressive web app, uh, a simple uh, portal that links to more than 140 applications that show the real-time availability of medical masks uh, in all the pharmacies. There are 6,000 of them uh, around Taiwan and also vending machines if you're in Taipei City. And I also contributed uh, to a caddy-based small server uh, in the beginning uh, to use the national health insurance app so that you can pre-order those masks and deliver it to your nearby convenience store if you work late in the hour so you cannot uh, go to a physical pharmacy you can at least pick it up from one of the 12,000 convenience stores i also help a little bit on the scalability of the initial app-based prototype of the pre-ordering system so um, i think there's more than 90 percent of Taiwanese citizens using these two applications now and everybody have adequate medical mask supply. That's fantastic. Congratulations. What sort of skills has this job demanded of you that you didn't need before? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the main thing, uh, as opposed to our uh, work previously in the open source or civic tech community, is that we need to adopt a um, idea of designing with people and that we're actually like civil engineers, not just civic technologists. The difference is that with a civic technologist, you primarily code for people who understand what you're doing. Uh, for open source people, we primarily code for other open source developers and people who at least have an idea of what our purpose is. But as a government official and as a public servant, we need to first consider people who have no idea what this digital technology is about. We have to first consider um, the people who are vulnerable populations, people who don't uh, have the digital competence to understand the uh, full idea of their rights uh, of you know denying access um, and or granting access to their personal data and things like that so we need to work with the people and empower the people who are closest to the field instead of just people who have happen to have digital capabilities and i think uh, with, with a user base that's more than half of your population um, you have to consider a lot more things than compared to if you only work for maybe just you know 10,000 people that share your values Mm. It sounds very much as though you've brought the ideals of open source to government or you're debugging democracy. Mm -hmm, and yes. either way, it sounds that you're empowering people to an extraordinary extent. Can you describe digital democracy and the role that technology plays in it? Certainly. The main idea is that previously using pen and paper, uh, we can only upload a very few bits of information. So like voting for president or voting for MPs is essentially maybe four bits of information every four years or every two years. Even with referenda, it's like five bits of information every four years or two years. So um, the total information input from the civil society to the democratic institution cannot actually accurately reflect the real-time needs of people. Compare that to, for example, the mask map is a good example because everybody who show up with their national health insurance card to a pharmacy and swipe it, they can immediately purchase for just under two US dollars nine medical masks every two weeks if they're an adult or 10 if you're a child. And they can see within a couple minutes that the stock level actually decreases on the map. 
And if it actually increases instead of decrease, they will probably call the hotline 1922 to report a bug in the system. So this is the idea of a distributed ledger. It's an idea that everybody has a copy of what's going on during the mass rationing and supply so that not only they can uh, feedback with their ideas about dashboards and about over or under supply detection and monitoring, but can also call 1922 and say, hey, um, this district only has pink medical masks and and my boy uh, doesn't want to go to school because all he had was pink medical masks. But instead of, uh, you know, changing the supply line to feature more colors, the very next day, the press conference of the uh, Central Epidemic Month, everybody wore pink medical masks regardless of gender and teaches the nation about gender mainstreaming. And so this kind of rapid response system where everybody's idea can be amplified through a radically transparent uh, ask me anything uh, live press conference every 2 p.m. Uh, that is again a sign of what the digital technology in particular live streaming and uh, listening and skill technologies such as uh, Slido and Polis and the e-petition, uh, e-petition platform can do to a democracy and that makes us uh, in the cabinet to work with people much more directly and have much more bits of information to work with. Mm. Giving all this power to the citizens, there's a saying in the West, you'll never keep them on the farm once they've seen Paris. Are you in some sense inoculating the people against the possibility of some future government wanting to take some of that power back? Would they just not stand for that? That's exactly right. What we're building is a social norm uh, that makes sure that uh, the government, the state, need to be transparent to the people. And the people can choose to trust the government or not. Uh, This is as opposed to the more authoritarian regimes, some of them quite nearby, uh, that makes the citizens transparent to the state uh, and ask for for essentially blind trust uh, without accountability or freedom of journalism. So I would say that this is norm building and this is the norm exactly the same as the core internet norms, that is to say end-to-end innovation, that is to say, uh, rough consensus and running code, except this time it is not just algorithm code, it's also code of regulations and code of other norms. So you'd been building this digital democracy before the pandemic, and then that happened, and you achieved a response that's the envy of most of the world in its success, especially because you achieved it without kind of totalitarian police state tactics that many people thought were going to be necessary. Does that validate the concept of digital democracy? Yeah, I would say so. In open source development, there's a saying that many eyes make any bug shallow, meaning that if you make sure that everybody understands the underlying science, in this case, epidemiology, of what we're doing, then you do not have to do a you know global lock or a imperial sorry imperative style uh, social program that locks down schools and businesses, which we've never had to do, uh, nor any sort of strict like criminal penalties, uh, because people understand the underlying science and they can contribute their own innovations uh, to the furthering of those scientific principles. And so we've never had to uh, rely on any of those totalitarian measures that you just mentioned. We just basically relied on the civil society to understand the importance of crucial technologies such as SOAP, uh, very crucial technology, uh, and the design of incentive 
of medical masks, for example, billing it as something that protects yourself because it reminds you to wash your hands properly and not to touch your face. And that enabled, in turn, a small uh, portion in a large crowd who wear masks to remind the other people to wear masks to appeal to their selfish interests of protecting their own health and caring for each other um, instead of, um, you know, a purely altruistic incentive design, which would not work unless a majority of people in the room already wore a mask. And so there's many small things like this that taken together form a more resilient pandemic response. And as we like to say, the testing proves it and your numbers have proved that this pandemic disrupts the status quo in just about every walk of life for just about everyone on the planet. We've had many patterns within our societies and institutions that were not optimal, but have become ossified, as it were, almost impossible to change. And yet COVID-19 has disrupted them along with everything else. Maybe we have the opportunity to improve those patterns while they're still fluid and volatile before they gel again. Do you see places where we can emerge from this better than we went into it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think this is a great uh, opportunity uh, for the world to see and compare each other's governance models. Uh, we see, for example, in Taiwan, we amplified a lot the ideas of humor over rumor. We had our um, counter disinformation plans before that worked more or less okay, but it's the COVID-19 pandemic that really launched the spokes dog, a very cute dog-shaped dog, a real dog uh, that uh, lived with um, the participation officer, the PO of the Ministry of Health and Welfare, who is in charge of the open government work. So what they have done is that after each uh, daily press conference, take photos of their uh, of the dog uh, and translate um, the scientific language into simple doge memes and, and language uh, that reminds people, for example, if you're indoors, you have to keep three dogas apart uh, from each other. And if you're outdoor, keep two dogas apart um, as a way to explain social distancing, as it were. Um, and so this has been viral, literally, on the cyberspace uh, that uh, just dwarfed the conspiracy theories and pseudoscientific health advices uh, and everybody adored this folks talk uh, of the CECC, the, the Zongchai. Um, and so that amplifies uh, Taiwan's message and also our way of countering disinformation and the power of humor to pretty much a lot of nearby jurisdictions, including Japan and South Korea. And that's also amplified, we see in other places, that if you're authoritarian to begin with, if you make citizen transparent to the state, then that tendency also gets amplified. And if you rely on um, like multinational uh, tech companies um, as a more capable, um, you know, uh, fiduciary <laughs> trust of, of people's data, then we also see in places that gets Amplify. So whether it's social sector, uh, the state or the private sector, whomever that demonstrate a more resilient governance model will get noticed and replicated. And uh, I think our idea here is just to uh, remain uh, firmly in the idea of constitutional democracy. And I think Taiwan is uniquely helpful in that because we've never declared a state of emergency. We still operate within the confines of constitutional democracy. So everything we do uh, can be translated into everyday regulations and everyday norms once the pandemic is over. It doesn't require a special authorization of power. Wow, that's a lot to take on. And you mentioned 
disinformation in in various ways and fake news and what used to be called propaganda or psyops is a serious problem in at least some democracies at the moment and the coronavirus has led to us isolating behind in internet conversations which is exactly the kind of environment in which that virus of the mind breeds at a, a time when we were trying to decrease the amount of screen time people had and increase their social interactions, we've been forced to do exactly the opposite. How could AI or other technology combat the problem of disinformation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as I said, what we found uh, to ensure our press freedom and freedom of speech while countering disinformation, it's essential to take this humor over rumor mantra uh, and just make sure that everybody understands this time not epidemiology of memes, but really the, the psychology of memes um, underlying it. So we've been just like our vice president have been recording online crash courses, uh, MOOCs on epidemiology 101. I've been recording uh, short videos that explains the psychology behind this information. And the idea is that the emotions spread on social media, you too can also see that it mutates. And the one that was a higher R0, higher uh, basic transmission number, <laughs> go viral, while the one that has the R0 under one uh, do not go viral and remain just in uh, private or personal communications. And the main factor in uh, determining whether some message go viral is whether it can provoke a sense of outrage. Uh, if it provokes a sense of outrage that can channel somebody's unease or somebody's anger into the um, action of clicking share before fact-checking, before going to search engines and so on, then that meme uh, is a toxic viral meme, a virus of the mind, if you will, that will go viral. And we found that if people get um, a Inoculation, if people see a message uh, that is funny, that uh, connects to the same symbols, to the same video or the same image, then uh, the psychology makes sure that their upsets can be turned into a sense of humor and they will share this funny message. And once they see the other message that want to provoke outrage, they will no longer feel outrage and therefore the basic transmission rate of that uh, meme based on outrage will decrease. And so, uh, for example, there was panic buying of tissue papers for a couple of days. There was a rumor that says, uh, because we're ramping up the medical mask production from 1.8 million to 18 million a day, it will consume the same material as the tissue paper. And so people went to panic buy. And so our premier essentially uh, just published a meme within two hours. Um, and that shows his wiggling bottom. Uh, and with a large title saying, we each have only one pair of Botox. Uh, and so there's no need to panic buy. Uh, and yeah, you laugh that that means the meme had worked. And a table that shows that the tissue paper are made out of material from South America, while the medical masks are made out of domestic materials. And everybody who laughed about it has that uh, two by two table kind of remembered in, in their in their minds. Uh, and so they will not then share the panic buying conspiracy theory because they know it's the different material. So it, uh, the conspiracy theory died down just in a couple of days. And we eventually found that the person who spread that rumor was a tissue paper reseller, go figure. So the idea is that we need to respond within a couple of hours to each trending rumor. The response need to be short and succinct, like 20, characters or less in its title. And also it needs to have a mimetic payload that evokes a sense of 
humor. And once we do that, then we successfully inoculate uh, the disinformation that's rampant on social media. I think there are many people on this side of the world that need to understand that as well as you do, uh, because manifestly it is a much bigger problem over here. And in one aspect, AI is accelerating that problem because of the number of bots that are populating Twitter with messages that are aimed at causing disruption and dissent among the population, probably in many cases at the behest of some foreign power. Do you see this where you are and how do you see this evolving as perhaps a kind of information warfare? Yeah, and then I would not call it disinformation even. It, it's essentially information warfare or malinformation operations. Uh, and for example, during our presidential election campaign period, uh, which is uh, late last, last year, uh, there was a, a surprisingly amount of forged uh, captions to real photos. And that says, for example, there was one that says, quote, the rioters in Hong Kong are just teenagers and they get paid 20,000 um, or 200,000, depending on the rumor, uh, US dollars for murdering police, unquote. Um, and so that's a uh, cyber op, uh, essentially dis designed to make Taiwanese people not sympathize with people who are in Hong Kong at the moment, uh, at that moment uh, during the anti-ELA uh, protests. And what um, we have done, instead of just shutting down those accounts or, uh, you know, taking down the content, which doesn't work because, uh, as you pointed out, it is a bot um, network with synthetic uh, information out there. So even though the platforms may do some takedowns and so on, what we found as reliably working is to do a, a attribution, to do a notice and public notice. So um, some of uh, people in Canada may know that their copyright enforcement, unlike the DMCA, is not uh, notice and takedown, but rather notice and notice, meaning that people who share uh, those allegedly copyright infringing works uh, do not see their work, maybe remixes, taken down, but rather they receive a automated notice uh, that says, you know, this is a copyright claimer uh, and you probably need to sit down and talk with them and the state doesn't arbitrarily take down any content, but they make sure that all the allegedly uh, infringing content uh, have their publishers and their the people who share it receive the copyright notices that's sent by the original copyright holder. And so we apply the same idea to the social media post so that people sharing uh, that rumor about the Hong Kong so-called rioters um, see a very clear uh, fact-checking link after each of those contents showing that um, this is a disinformation and we can trace and this we is independent journalists working on uh, third-party fact-checking can trace it back to the Weibo to the social media account of uh, the Zhongyang Zhengfa with the central political and legal unit of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. And so what this has done essentially is to put a face um, to all the messages of this vein and that lets people see and judge for themselves whether they want to uh, believe uh, a, a Weibo account that is run by the um, Beijing communist government that takes a Reuters photo and the original caption of the photo says nothing about being paid uh, and adds their own captions. And once people understand the, the, you know, the, the path of this transmission, 
they can then make their own decisions and they can inoculate themselves against future variations of this sort because they see how the information, the propaganda, as it were, uh, comes from and where it's designed to go. That's very interesting. I'm thinking of some cultural differences and wondering how successful that approach might be in the United States, where it seems that pointing out the provenance of information hasn't always helped in changing its uh, effect. I'm reminded of saying that a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And I think that you're demonstrating how the truth can get its boots on faster. Yeah, that's right. The truth can be very funny. It could be Mm -hmm. uh, filled with doga means, yes. As an open source developer, your customers were mostly a narrow base of developers, but government is responsible for the welfare of all of its citizens, including, as you point out, those who neither care nor know about technology. And what should governments be doing today in respect of the impact of technology on those people? Does that role, for instance, tilt mainly towards providing education or regulation or incentives on the tech sector or or something else? Mm-hmm. In Taiwan, uh, broadband is a human right. So anywhere in Taiwan, for example, on the peak of Taiwan, almost 4,000 meters, the, the Savia Mountain, uh, you still have 10 megabits per second or just 16 US dollars per month, unlimited 4G connection, and probably faster because fewer people share it. It's very high. So what, what I'm trying to say is that if we give not only equal opportunity to people, but also makes the places where it's even more remote than we usually think of being uh, included in the digital be actually the first places to get 5G deployment, the first place to get telehealth care and telemedicine and um, self-driving vehicles to address their needs of uh, health care and communication and education and so on. We make a firm commitment to the people saying, no matter where you are in Taiwan, no matter where you're in indigenous places, indigenous nations and islands and so on, you actually have better opportunity when it comes uh, digitally in your local digital opportunity center and so on uh, as compared to people in the municipal areas. And I personally tour around Taiwan probably every three days or so into a place uh, less connected to the uh, main transportation Taiwan high-speed rails. And I stay there usually for a couple of days. I'm going to a more remote part of Kaohsiung uh, tonight uh, and then uh, spend time with the local elders, um, spend time with the local social innovation organizations, including co-ops and uh, nonprofit sector, and to hear what they have to say, and then use the broadband as human right to connect them into real-time video conference with the central government in Taipei and in other municipalities. And so this is essentially like a fishbowl, a binding conversation locally that I personally host, but it's just me who travels. But using the internet, we can get the central government to listen uh, at what people have to say. And instead of uh, just handling their ideas like abstract A4 papers that gets passed between the organizational silos, which gets nowhere, or uh, even worse, maybe gets somewhere and they think they have solved the problem while causing more problems, we make sure that all the responsible ministry or uh, agencies and so on are in the same room so they don't have to copy each other. They can just brainstorm with with each other and solve the local issues in the here and now. So I think that the digital again serves as an amplifier 
instead of working on smart cities, we need to work with smart citizens. And instead of working with just machine learning, we need to work on collaborative learning experiences. Now, if you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, it sounds like we're not finished here. You're right. We're only halfway done with this interview. We're going to end this episode here, though, and continue it in the next one because we want to keep these podcasts under 45 minutes where possible because of file download sizes for one, but also attention spans, particularly given how much Audrey has already given us to think about. Don't want those brains getting too overheated out there. In the next episode, we will conclude that interview and get into conversations about the effect of automation on jobs, the ethical development of artificial intelligence, the role of internal and international treaties on the development of artificial intelligence, and what the next 10 years might bring in terms of innovation. Until next time, remember... No matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.